0: Welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're looking at the case of Barton and Wright Hassall, LLP, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 12. And the case that we're looking at this week sounds like any law firm's worst nightmare. It is Mr Barton who is the central focus, and his case has its origins back in 2005, when he brought a professional negligence case against a law firm who had acted on his behalf in 1999. The solicitors who represented Mr Barton in that professional negligence case against the other law firm were the Leamington-based Wright-Hassel LLP, who are now themselves the respondent in this case. Problems originally arose because Wright-Hassel applied to stop representing Barton due to a dispute about fees. That application was successful, even in spite of Barton's attempts to appeal the decision. Like the legal equivalent of a Medusa, this managed to spawn two new actions. Firstly, Wright Hassel successfully claimed the costs associated with acting for Mr. Barton before they stopped representing him. And secondly, Mr. Barton, this time acting for himself, began his own claim that is indirectly the subject of this appeal to the Supreme Court. The claim form was issued on 25th of February 2013, and under Rule 7.5 of the Civil Procedure Rules, that form is then valid for four months. At this point, Wright Hassel decided to instruct their own solicitors to handle the case, a firm called Berryman's Lace Mauer, who then requested that Mr Barton address all future correspondence to them, including both the claim form and particulars of claim. Interestingly, that request was made by email, which will prove to be a relevant factor later on. Barton only sent the claim form and response pack to Berryman's Lace Mower on the 24th of June 2013, which was the last day before the claim form was due to expire. In theory, then, that should still be within the time limit, but more than a week later, the solicitors responded and said that because they had not confirmed that they would accept service of the documents by email, the claim form had now expired, and the claim was now statute barred. This did not deter Barton, who argued that his email was indeed a valid means of service. Alternatively, he also argued that this non-compliant mode of communication should be treated as good service under Rule 6.15 of the Civil Procedurals or that he should be granted a time extension under Rule 7.6. He was not successful, but appealed on the basis that his service by email should be validated, and that was how the case arrived before the Supreme Court. In the end, the justices were split and only decided by 3-2 to two that Mr Barton's service by email should not be validated. Lord Sumption gave the lead judgement for the majority and identified a number of factors to be taken into account, when deciding whether to validate non-compliant service? Firstly, has the claimant taken reasonable steps to try and comply with the rules? Secondly, did the defendant or his legal representation actually know the content of the claim form by the time it has expired? And finally, what sort of repercussions would there be for the defendant if the service was actually validated? When it came to answering these questions in the context of the case before us, there was not enough there to justify the validation of service by email. Mr Barton had not really taken steps to comply with the rules and had actually left himself exposed by not sending the claim form until the last minute. If he had sent it earlier, then there would have been time to rectify his mistake by using a different means of service. The second question is much harder to answer because the nature of email means that we don't really know if Berrymans had managed to familiarise themselves with the claim form by the time that it had expired. Again, the fact that the email was sent at the last minute means that the answer is probably no, and does not favour Barton's argument. In answer to the final question, there would be some detriment to Wright Hassle if service by email were validated by the courts, as they would lose the chance to argue that the limitation period for the claim has passed. Lord Sumption's lead judgement also examined a number of other factors relevant to the case, including the civil procedure rules and the practice directions. In particular, it was noted that the rules and directions are by no means inaccessible or obscure, and that it's perfectly reasonable to expect any claimant, even when they are a litigant in person, as is the case here, to familiarise themselves with the administration of civil law. It was even pointed out that Mr Barton was, by this point, more than aware of the processes, given his string of previous actions. There was, in conclusion, no good reason for his failure to comply. But what about the argument that the email was sent successfully, and did make Berrymans aware of the claim? For Lord Sumption, this was not by itself sufficient for validation of service by email. The rules are designed to be clear and specific, and this is important in a practical area of the law that deals in precision. The rules are designed to be clear and specific, and this is important in a practical area of the law that deals in precision. It is necessary for the courts to be aware of the point at which time limits start and end, as there are significant consequences associated with this that can impact on the entire validity of a claim. Email can present particular issues in this regard, as, even with things like read receipts, an inbox might not be monitored, or the message might not be directed to the relevant person. The final question for Lord Sumption to deal with was whether there had been a breach of the right to a fair trial under Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights. But given that the civil procedure rules are clearly identifiable, and things like limitation periods are necessary for the efficient administration of justice, there is not a persuasive argument made in this regard. Of course, this was a split decision, and so we would be remiss not to consider the thoughts of the minority before concluding this episode. The main thrust of the argument brought forward by Lord Briggs and Lady Hale focused on the aim of service. The key purpose of service is to provide notification that a claim has begun, and to ensure that details within the claim form are brought to the attention of the other party. Where this purpose is achieved, it follows that the service should be validated, unless there are very good reasons for not doing so. In other words, there do not have to be extra justifications for validation, so long as this basic purpose is met. Applying this to the case at hand, it becomes very simple to say that Mr Barton's email satisfied the basic purpose of the rules, and so his service should be validated. When it comes to trying to analyse this case and work out which side is correct, it is important to separate this particular instance and the overall principle. For lawyers, the very idea of someone like Mr Barton as a client is the stuff of nightmares. A person who seems to think that the law is designed for their own personal benefit is quick to litigate and will blame everyone but himself if things go wrong. This sense of Mr Barton comes across in the judgement actually, and the majority reference Barton as an experienced litigator who should have known better. Further to this, the argument that the civil procedure rules are technical and obscure was dismissed almost out of hand. The problem is that when the Supreme Court Justices make a decision, that decision does not simply affect one party like Mr Barton, but rather sets a precedent for the entire country, and that is why the principle is the most important thing. There is a practice direction 6A that looks at the subject of service by email, which at the time was a relatively new technology, but by now it is the case that you simply have to be on email these days. The idea that the law is unable to reflect this by the year 2018, in either the rules and directions or a precedent set by the highest court in the land, is actually quite embarrassing for our legal system. Lord Briggs and Lady Hale point out that so long as the service meets the core requirements, then there's no reason why service shouldn't be validated. On the other hand, the majority seem to have already made up their mind ahead of giving judgment, and insert additional needs, factors and requirements that essentially allow them to try and justify non-validation. Based on things more associated with the facts of an individual case, rather than the service of the claim form. In the end, this should actually have been quite a simple case to resolve, but by overcomplicating it and failing to get their head around the modern world that we live in, the Supreme Court comes off looking like any other backwards facing British institution. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Thanks as always to everyone who manages to provide a rating and a review of the podcast on iTunes. That is amazing. It's really appreciated. We're at 49 reviews as I record this, so very close to 50 now and that's um, amazing. There's a couple of uh, written reviews over the last week. Um, Gerald Uffhub. Um, described as the number one law pod which was uh, very kind and we also had a five star rev- review from Shishi 1990 so thank you to both of you uh, and thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to the episodes, much appreciated Right, well that's everything from me but I'll be back next week with another case, but until then Bye!